Hey there, travelers. This is Isabella editing in the future, and I just want to take a second to apologize on behalf of all of us for last week's audio quality. It was shit, to be quite honest, and we're not entirely sure what happened with that recording, uh, but we just want to let you know that it's never going to happen again because in the last week, we've figured out what was wrong with a lot of our previous recordings, not Canada specifically, but going forward, our editing and recordings are going to be done differently, which means they're going to sound differently, and they're also going to start sounding a lot more professional. So in a couple weeks, uh, look forward to some much better audio quality from us. It's going to sound a lot more professional, and we're really excited about it. So again, we're really sorry, but we have fixed a lot of things, and there will be changes made in the future to make this show even better. All right, enough of me. Let's get into the episode. Hey there, travelers. I'm Isabella. I'm Riley. I'm Angelica. And this is True Crime International. So Isabella, where are we going today? All right. So to kick off 2021, because this will be our first episode in 2021, though it's still 2020 when we're recording it, this is going to be the first part of a series that we're doing. Um, So several weeks ago, I was thinking about what are the most famous international cases in the world. And off the top of my head, I came up with three separate cases, uh, which is perfect because there's three of us. So basically what we're going to do is each of us is going to take one of these cases and each of us is going to do a two-parter for these cases. So this week you read the title, you know what we're doing. Part one is going up today on Monday. Part two is going to go up on Thursday in lieu of a layover. And then the first week of February, Angelica is going to do the same thing with her case. And then the first week of March, Riley will do the same thing with her case. The part one on the Monday and the part two on the Thursday. Uh, so three different cases, all in two parts. The rest of the months will look the same. Like the rest of January is going to look the same as as normal. But we wanted to do some deep dives and cover some more uh, well-known cases. And it'll be the both the parts will be full length parts. So yeah, it's not like the first part will be long and the second part will be the length of a layover. No, they're going to be two full length episodes. So you get basically an extra full length that month instead of a layover. Yeah, and we're all putting in so much extra work into these cases. I've been sitting with this case now for a month and I am just severely bummed out, but I'm ready to talk about it. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a lot to say. So you've read the title. Today's case is all about Madeline McCann, who's probably the most famous missing child in the world since like the Lindbergh baby. Who? Never mind. <laughs> yeah. We learned about it in yeah, AP US history. Just... I was Do- not an A-push. <laughs> Does, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm going to look that up later. <laughs> I probably just repressed that too, if it's high school related. Mood. So I was 11 when this case happened, and I actually remember it pretty well. Um, and considering I wasn't into true crime back then, like it, it's, it's crazy that I remember all this happening so well. Whenever... I would go grocery shopping with my parents on Sundays. I would always look at like the magazine and newspaper section right by the checkout and like look for the updates because I was curious. I wanted to know if they had found her. And, you know, this case was just so huge that even an 11 year old that didn't care about true crime was 
into it and was wanted to yeah, know what was well, happening. Yeah, I mean, because when it's like all around you, it's interesting. And honestly, those like magazine like headlines or cover pages, like those things, those things get you. They're so enticing. They're so enticing. They're so oh, enticing. I know. I mean, most of the time. And as a child, when I see another child. Yeah. 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 Something like that something happened to, I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah, you're like, uh-oh. I am also risk. a child, so this is weird. So this case actually had a major update in 2020, but I'm not going to be touching on that until part two. So you have to wait till Thursday. Please don't Google it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm really happy that this is being broken up into two parts because holy fuck, this case is so messy. It's so messy. I wrote full pages that I ended up deleting because I was like, none of this is relevant information. And it's just, let's just, let's it's just dive into It's hard to follow it. and it's hard to like, it's hard to follow all the facts and like what's true, what's speculation because the media was so involved. Oh, for sure. And we'll touch on that a ton, but let's, let's, let's really get into it. So Madeline was born on May the 12th, 2003 to Jerry and Kate McCann. Kate was born in 1968 and was originally from Liverpool. Jerry was also born in 1968 uh, and is originally from Glasgow, which is super obvious through his accent, by the way. He's got a really thick Glaswegian accent. In 1992, Kate graduated from the University of Dundee in Scotland. She studied medicine. Jerry graduated from the University of Glasgow in 1989 with a degree in sports medicine, and then he became an MD in 2002. Kate and Jerry met in 1993 at like a bar. Um, and they got married in 1998 and they were like the perfect couple. They were young, good looking, well-educated. They were doctors. They were devout Roman Catholics. This was like a match made in Roman Catholic heaven, really. I was going to say, <laughs> you were like the perfect couple. And then you said a Roman Catholic and I'm like, you don't have to be Roman Catholic. <laughs> no, you don't have to be a Roman Catholic to be a perfect couple, but... <laughs> Like, on paper, this is the type of couple that people would be like, oh, they seem like good people, you know? Yeah, on Roman Catholic paper. <laughs> on Roman Catholic paper. Sometime after their marriage, they moved to Leicester in England, where they both worked as GPs for a while, though Jerry ended up becoming a consulting cardiologist in 2005. I just want to say I never would have pronounced that Leicester, um, so it's a good thing that you are yeah. doing this. Wait. It's, That's it's not Leicester, apparently. No, it's Lester. I would have called it like Leicester. <laughs> no, it's Lester. Lester. Okay, cool. This cool, is why cool, you have cool, me cool. for English town names. Glad we cleared that up. Mm -hmm. You should see how beaver is spelled. Oh, but we don't have time for that today. <laughs> yeah. So for years, the couple tried to have a child naturally, but they couldn't. So uh, they decided to try IVF, and that's how they were able to have Madeline a short time later in 2003. And then in 2005, again through IVF, they had twins, a boy and a girl named Sean and Amelie. By all accounts, they were a super average middle or maybe like more upper middle class family. I mean, they were doctors. As Kate tells it in her book called Madeline, it was on New Year's Day in 2007 that two of Kate and Jerry's friends came over with their two small children to hang out and play and, you know, just, just hang out really. And that was when the idea was proposed about going to Portugal for a spring holiday. It was going to be them, as in the McCanns, and then three other couples, including the one that was there that day, uh, as someone's mom, and then all the kids. 
So it was a pretty big group going, and it was a total of nine adults. That's very important. Imagine just going to Portugal for vacation, like not having to go to Florida. Mood. I mean, <laughs> can't wait until we're allowed to vacation together again. I know. In the UK, traveling to Spain or Portugal is the equivalent to us traveling to Florida for a vacation. It's not seen as like a big extravagant thing to do because flights in Europe are pretty pretty cheap considering. That's funny, just because like it's another country. Like I guess I guess us going to Mexico yeah. is pretty common, but yeah, that's interesting. I never knew that. So the big group holiday would be in the southern part of Portugal known as the Algarve. Kate wasn't too sure about going because it was a bit expensive. Uh, but also because she knew that traveling internationally with three kids under the age of four was going to be a pain in the ass. Yeah. Traveling anywhere. Can't with imagine kids. that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> with any kids. They had traveled before, but, you know, it was such a big trip. There was going to be just so much going on and they have to bring so much stuff with them to, to be able to accommodate three kids under four. So I, I can understand that yeah. hesitation. But Jerry really wanted to go. The resort that they were going to be staying at was smaller. It was more relaxed. There was lots of like sports stuff to do. And there was also tons of stuff for the kids specifically as well. So they ultimately decided to book their trip. And so they were going on this big group holiday to Portugal. Little Madeline was so excited to go on a plane. So excited. She told everyone about it, all her friends and teachers at school. Like when Kate would go pick her up. The teachers would say stuff like, oh, I hear you're going to Portugal because Madeline just would not stop talking about it. She was so, so excited. <sighs> My family never let me tell anyone I was going on Why? vacation. Because, because then your because, house is empty yeah. and then people can break yeah. in. My parents never let me like post about it. Yeah, My parents same. never cared. <laughs> and we traveled quite a bit when I was young. I had no money saved for university because my parents spent it all on travel. <laughs> Not complaining, though. <laughs> so on April 28, 2007, the family arrived in the village of Praia de Luz to the Ocean Club Resort. It had a pool, it had tennis courts, beach access, private restaurants, everything you could want in a family resort, right? The McCanns stayed oh, yeah. in a two-bedroom apartment which had a kitchen, living room, full bath, and like an outdoor patio veranda area. And that that area looked oh, like it looked out over the uh, resort. So you could see like the pool and stuff. It sort of like faced inward. It's a very nice place. Yeah, it looks really nice. I'd like to be there right now. For sure. <laughs> Anywhere but where we are. So crucially, their apartment was on the ground floor. And it sat on the corner of two public roads. I have a picture on there that you guys can see, but you can like these these two roads, they're public. They're just in the middle of this village. So anyone can walk by here. Anyone can see the apartment. It's not anywhere private. So it's not like a closed resort. No. It's not like a sandals. Okay. It's just and this, yeah. this these types of resorts are pretty common in like Portugal, Spain, and they're really popular with British tourists. Um where you just kind of have a resort in the middle of a town, it's really not uncommon. But it's mm -hmm. it's very okay. different to how we vacation in the United States. Yeah. So there were two primary ways to access the apartment. There was the front door, um, and then there was the door to like the patio veranda area. It was one of those sliding glass doors. To get to that door from the street, you would have to go through two separate gates. Um, so there was one gate, 
like the gate on the street and then there were some stairs and then there was a gate at the top of the stairs but the gate at the top of the stairs i think was less about security and more about making sure kids didn't fall down the stairs according to kate for the first couple of days they used the front door but then they just it was so much more convenient to use the patio door because that if they used the front door they would then have to walk around the corner um, and they would end up passing the patio door so it was just way more convenient to go in and out of the patio door to to get to the rest of the resort so their vacation was pretty unremarkable at first every morning they would take their kids down to their respective kids clubs this resort had kids clubs which were like yeah i mean it was broken up by ages um so madeline was in a different one than her her two younger siblings and they would do activities that's a bummer to be honest what do you mean like if you're on vacation with your family and then you're separated but from she was with family, her friends like that would because be... the other couples brought their kids yeah and she did yeah. not care i guess i i just i would i would hate it i wouldn't have cared one second and madeline sure as heck did not care they had all sorts of activities like they would go boating they would do arts and crafts they would play all sorts of games they had snacks they even got to have ice cream sometimes so like it was it was wow. pretty cool shit for for little kids they were all supervised by experienced resort staff uh they were perfectly safe in those kids clubs and i actually i went to a resort in turkey when i was 10 and there was a similar sort of thing and i would go to like this kids club every day and i loved it i love not being around my family because I, I i felt like super independent getting to go to the kids club and uh hang out with people my age and like do the activities that i want to do to do and my mom was totally chill with it she's like i'm gonna go to the beach and drink so it worked out so while the kids enjoyed their time at the clubs uh kate and jerry joined their friends for activities that they were interested in they would go play tennis they would go for runs on the beach they would have a beer hang out adult stuff like what, what you'd want to do on vacation they would always have their meals with the kids like they would have breakfast with them they would pick up their kids for lunch and then the kids would go back to the kids clubs and then at 5 p.m they would meet their kids by the tapas bar at the resort where they would be dropped off by the staff the kids would all have dinner together and they would play on a nearby play structure uh, and then they would all go back to their respective rooms where they would get ready for bed and they would all be down by like seven o'clock and because nice. they were pretty tired out from a full day of activities you know yeah before you said i know you clarify but i thought the adults were going to bed at seven too <laughs> and i'm just like what Mode. in what world i couldn't <laughs> So after all the kids went to sleep, the, the adults would meet up and have dinner together. Now, I'm going to explain the dinner arrangements and then I'm going to walk us through the timeline of the night Madeline went missing. This part of the story tends to get people the most riled up. So I'm going to ask you at this point to reserve any questions or judgments you have until later. I want us to walk through the timeline together uninterrupted with as objective a mindset as possible. Is that okay? Yes, ma'am. It's controversial, so I want us to just try and be objective and to just try and get the facts in our brains of what happened that night, you know, as best we can. So at the Ocean Club, there were a few restaurants, but the one nearest to the rooms that the McCanns and their friends were staying at was the Tapas Bar. The Tapas Bar had pretty strict rules for seating. You had to make a reservation on the day that you intended to eat there. So you couldn't make a reservation the day before and you could only eat there if you had a reservation. They didn't accept walk-ins. So not wanting to risk having a convenient place 
to have dinner after the kids were asleep, the McCanns and their friends asked if they could make a reservation for the same time every day that week, and the restaurant allowed it. And I think they allowed it because there were nine of them, so it was a larger party. They wouldn't be taking up the valuable, like, two or four table, like, party table tables. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also the fact it was it was pretty off season. So this was after spring break and before the summer holidays started. So I think they were probably slower and it was OK to make that exception. So their routine after the kids were asleep was that they would have a glass of wine together in their rooms. So Kate and Jerry would have a glass of wine together and then they would head down to the restaurant with their friends. While everyone had dinner, all the parents would take turns getting up and going to check on their own kids in their rooms. And you have to understand the tapas bar is a stone's throw away from all of their rooms. And they would all have been able to see their rooms from the restaurant, which is why they chose to eat there. No one in the party thought that it would be unsafe in the slightest. So Madeline went missing on Thursday, May 3rd, 2007, just two days before they were set to head home. The day went about like all the others on the vacation. It was absolutely nothing special. The only odd thing was that during breakfast, Madeline asked Kate, why didn't you come when Sean and I cried last night? Kate asked her what she meant because she didn't remember them crying at any point that night. So it must have been when they were at dinner. But Madeline didn't elaborate further and she just moved on to something else. She just was totally unbothered. She just asked the question. She was like, you don't have an answer? Cool, I'm going to move on. She didn't seem upset or anything. She just, it was just like three-year-old stuff, you know? Mm-hmm, and so Kate mm-hmm. was like, must not be super important. And so she moved on too. The day went on as all the others had with all the kids asleep around 7 p.m. Jerry took a shower between 7.15 and 7.30. Then Kate got cleaned up and put on some makeup. And then they hung out in the living room of the apartment. They enjoyed a glass of wine for about 45 minutes um, before heading out to dinner. At 8.30, Jerry checked on the kids and then they met up with their friends and went to the restaurant. They left the light on in the living room and went out the sliding glass doors. Uh, so like through the patio and then down the, through the gates and then to the restaurant. They left the curtains drawn uh, and this part is contested, but it's they said they locked the door. Then they said they didn't lock the door. And it's just confusing as whether whether or not the door was locked. They also made sure to shut both of the gates at the top and bottom of the stairs and then to the street. So by 9 um, p.m. Also, just to get this make sure i have this right in my head so the back door is the one that they can see from the yes bar. the sliding glass door okay because where their place is situated it's on the corner of these two public roads and the the front door faces the back public road that like it's it's the it's the door that doesn't face inward to like all the activity in the resort like it doesn't face the pool it doesn't face the restaurant so they can see the back part of their apartment from where they're sitting at the restaurant okay and that's the door that they that's the door they pretty much always used yeah but that's the door that they maybe did or didn't lock yeah it's confusing okay i don't think anyone really knows for sure by 9 p.m all nine adults were seated at the table in the restaurant at five past nine jerry got up and went to do his first check on the kids When he walked in, he noticed that the door to the kids' room was a little bit more open than he'd left it earlier. So he checked his and Kate's bedroom to make sure Madeline hadn't wandered in there because she did that sometimes, but she wasn't in there. And when he went and checked the kids' room, they were all sleeping soundly. So Jerry went back to the restaurant. All was good. At half past nine, K 
Kate got up at the same time as another member of their party. His name was Matt. And they were both going to go check on their kids. But Matt was like, you know what? Your your room is next to ours. So I'll just check on yours because I have to go anyway. And Kate was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'll go. She kind of hesitated. And he was like, seriously, your room's next door to ours. I'll just check. And again, this isn't someone that she met on vacation. She knows this person from home. They're really good friends. So she was like, okay. So uh, Matt ended up checking on the kids at around 930. And when he got back to the table, he assured them all was fine. He said everything was quiet. Kate went to check on the kids at 10 p.m. She entered the apartment the same way that Jerry and Matt had, and she immediately noticed that the door to the kids' room was open pretty widely. But Kate's first instinct was that Matt must have left it that way. She and Jerry wouldn't have, but that doesn't mean Matt knows that they leave the door that way, you know? But then she felt a breeze, even though... At no point did anyone open a window, and she definitely had not left the door open when she walked in. The breeze was strong enough that it shut the door to the kids' room, so Kate opened it back up, went in there, and discovered that Madeline was missing. Her favorite blanket and stuffed animal, which was called Cuddle Cat, were there on the bed, and the window and shutters to the room were open. But they had been closed before. Kate ran into her room to check if Madeline was there, but no luck. She ran back into the kids' room to be sure that her eyes weren't playing tricks on her, but it was real. Madeline was gone. The twins were still there. They were fast asleep. They were totally oblivious to what was happening. And Kate just, the panic set in and she checked everywhere in the apartment and she just, so she she ran out. She Like, Madeline wasn't there. So Kate ran out into the street uh, towards the restaurant screaming, Madeline's gone. Someone's taken her. There's some debate over whether or not she said someone's taken her or they've taken her yeah that's what i've always heard in the past is 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 they took her yeah there's debate around what she said i am quoting what she said she said from her book um but the the thing of her saying they've taken her that will come back later everyone sprung into action and started looking for madeline Matt went to the front desk of the resort at 10 past 10, and by half past 10, the resort had activated their missing child protocol, which had 60 staff out looking for the little girl. At this point, it was assumed that she had just wandered off. Uh, People didn't really want to think the worst. But by 11.30, the first police were on the scene. Two officers from the GNR, which is the abbreviation for the local police, But they quickly realized that they were in way over their heads. They could not handle something like this. So they called in Portugal's criminal police, uh, who I will be referring to as the PJ. The local police called the PJ around midnight, and they arrived around 1 a.m., although they say that they arrived 10 minutes after they received the call. There's a lot of just, there's a lot of mess here. So during these hours before the arrival of the PJ, So they arrived at 1 a.m. and it was discovered that Madeline was missing at 10 p.m. So three hours. People were just walking in and out of the McCann's apartment just willy-nilly. That's fucked. That's so frustrating. People were so certain that she had just wandered off in those first couple of hours that no one thought for a second to preserve a crime scene because no one was really thinking that way even though really really it's really kind of looking like an abduction here but even when the pj arrived they totally fucked up this investigation now i'm going to do a little quick aside here because 
I'm not criticizing the entire Portuguese police investigative justice system. There's because this case was so in the media, there was so much like shit throwing from the British police to the Portuguese police and the police, the British media to the Portuguese media. And uh, both sides had their justice systems just totally bashed by the other. So I want to make it clear that I'm not doing that. I am criticizing this specific investigation, but not the entire Portuguese justice system, because that's a very common thing that happens in this case is when you okay. stop bashing so their investigation, like the a lot of people will take it as bashing the entire justice system. That's not what I'm doing here. Uh, no, they're not like the LAPD. <laughs> I mean, investigations get fucked up everywhere, but the, for this specific case, I just need to make it clear that I am criticizing how they ran this investigation, but not how they run their whole justice system. I have no I have no reason to, co- to complain about that. But I can shit on the LAPD all day. <laughs> So that being said, they absolutely fucked up this investigation. You'd think that they would immediately secure the apartment, but they didn't. You'd think that they would give descriptions of Madeline to border and marine police so that way they could keep an eye out for her, but they didn't, not for many hours. You would think that they would immediately do roadblocks, but they didn't do that until 10 a.m., 12 hours after she went missing. You think that they would do house to house searches in the immediate like surrounding area, but they never did that at all. The PJ never requested highway surveillance footage from the night of the disappearance. Eurocut, which is the uh, company that monitors the highways, they were never even approached for information. And Interpol did not issue a global missing persons alert until five days after Madeline went missing. That's Even oh god. So fucked. <laughs> oh, by the way, you can start interjecting again. Uh okay. we've gone through the timeline. Also, just because like she's not fr- like she's not a Portuguese citizen. So like if someone else if a different citizen goes missing in your country, like that shit should be immediate. <laughs> As, yeah, for Interpol and especially like with the location of Praia de Luz in the very south of Portugal they're not that far from the Spanish border they could very easily get in a boat and go to Morocco like Interpol the Interpol missing persons thing should be done as immediately as possible not five days like damn but even the most basic stuff like interviewing all the guests at the resort was not done there were actually multiple other British people that you know, just happened to be there at the same time that ended up contacting British authorities years later to tell them that no one ever talked to them. No one ever asked if they saw anything, if they saw someone that looked like this or that. They just, in this, in this instance, the Portuguese police, they really fucked up. I'm they sorry. really, really yeah, fucked up. Right. I have to cough. <coughs> uh, hold on. Just give me a second. Okay. The police did not forensically seal the apartment where the McCanns were staying, which is insane. And unbelievably, the resort was given permission for the room to be cleaned and rented out again before they looked for DNA in the apartment. Jesus. And not only that, Jesus. but they, they, I hate like the the first 48 hours which are so critical they just screwed everything up they brought police dogs into the apartment before they collected dna so pretty much anything that they could have gotten anything useful was contaminated 
They literally left the apartment empty for a month before it was cleaned and rented again. So they could have gone in at any point in that month to collect DNA and they didn't. And the result was like, you know, we're losing money on this. Can we rent it out? And they were like, yeah, we don't need it. And then they rent it out and they're like, okay, wait, maybe, maybe we'll go get some DNA now. No words. No, there really are no words. And it wasn't just inside the apartment where they fucked up. But the outside window where it's believed that the abductor escaped, people were just allowed to walk by there and completely trample any evidence that there could have been outside that window. An officer literally... any, like, caution tape? Like, what the fuck? Right? An, an officer, an officer, literally dusted the window for fingerprints without any sort of protective clothing or even gloves. Are you fucking kidding me? You're dusting for fingerprints. You're not even wearing gloves. I feel as though maybe they've never worked on a case of this magnitude and like, or they hadn't done it in years and years and years. And they just like, they needed to be reminded about some protocols because some of them are very, very important. It is a bigger police unit, though. Like it is. This is the the national criminal police. Definitely, they they had trying to make an excuse for them, (laughs) but they don't really have any. They had a mess up. They had a mess up with this one. I mean, they didn't come from like Lisbon or Porto. Like this is the national criminal police, but in that specific area of Portugal, in the Algarve. So. I mean, yeah, they probably aren't super used to cases of this magnitude. I mean, cases of this magnitude don't happen very often. This is why it's so famous, you know? But there were just such basic things that they messed up. There's really no excuse for it whatsoever, in my opinion. So despite a lot of the horrible mistakes that they made, they did do something right, like interviewing the seven people that the McCanns had dinner with that night. And it was in these interviews that one of their party, her name was Jane Tanner, remembered one of the most important pieces of information in this entire case. So after Jerry did his first check on the kids at like nine, ten past, yeah, like at like ten past nine, you know, he bumped into someone that they knew on the way back to the restaurant. I think it was someone that they had met on vacation, but it, it definitely was not one of their party. And so he stopped to have a brief chat with him. And Jane saw them talking while she walked, she walked by them and saw them talking because she was going to check on her kids. And she says at around, it was, this was around 9.15 that she saw a man carrying a young child around three, maybe, who was wearing very similar pajamas to the ones that Madeline was wearing and was not actually too far from her window. He was carrying the child across his body, kind of like how you would hold a newborn or like you know, how a husband will carry his new wife over the threshold, you know what I mean? Like, across the body? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's kind of kind of weird, but I'll touch on that in just a sec. She didn't think anything of it at the time. I mean, why would she? She's staying at a family resort. So, you know, this well, could just be a dad carrying his kid. I and she do. didn't see the child's face. I find it slightly weird because of the fact that she noted... The child was wearing similar pajamas. Like, that's the only, that's, like, if I saw just someone carrying a kid, I wouldn't think of anything of it either. But if I saw someone carrying a kid and anything about that child seems 
like familiar to me, I'd be like, hmm, something's off. Yeah, but well, the thing is, like, sure. kids' pajamas probably look pretty similar. That is true. Like, there's also not the- many styles of pajamas and colors of pajamas for kids. So, and also, I feel like my dad carried me like that. Like, if I would like fall asleep in the car or something, he'd carry me in inside that way because that's how you pick me up out of the seat and carry me inside. So. I don't know. I can, I understand the like carrying your child over your shoulder thing, but sometimes I just fall asleep like that, and that's the best way. No, no, to no. Carry it wasn't him, over the so. shoulder; it was across the body. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. I wouldn't like some some people do carry their children over the shoulder, but I wouldn't say that it's weird for a parent to carry their child in that style. Like if especially if they're asleep. Yeah, yeah. About the pajamas, they were bought at Marks and Spencers, which is like one of the biggest department stores in the UK. And so literally thousands mm-hmm. of children probably have the exact same pajamas. It wouldn't be weird for another girl, exactly. Madeline's age, to be wearing the same ones. And she didn't necessarily note that it was similar pajamas to Madeline in that moment. She noted what they looked like. And it was later when, you know, talking to Kate and stuff that she realized that the child she saw may have been wearing the same pajamas as Madeline. But in like in that moment, she didn't think anything of it. She just saw a man carrying a... A child. She did think it was weird that he was carrying her across the body because she thought it would be more natural to do the over, over the shoulder thing. But like I said, in that moment, why would you think anything of it? You really wouldn't. But the PJ actually doubted the validity of her sighting because while she said she saw Jerry and that guy chatting, neither of them say that they saw her from across the street because she said she passed them, but they were across the street. But neither of them remember seeing her, but she says she remembers seeing them. And the street's pretty narrow. Because, I mean, this is Europe. Wait, the guys don't remember seeing Jane? No. She says she walked by them across the street. Uh, and she oh. saw them chatting. But they they say that they don't remember seeing her. Okay. I thought Jane was one of the parents in the party. She is. Oh. Oh, she was just across the street instead of at the bar with them? She was going to check on her kids when this happened. All the parents in their party, like all, all everyone in their party was getting up at different times to go check on their own kids. Okay. But either way, whether or not this whether or not her sighting is real, Jane gave a description of the man to the police as best she could, though she didn't give it the, a face because she's like I just didn't note it enough and I don't want to describe someone and have it be wrong, you know? So it was more how the man was carrying the child, the pajamas that the child was wearing, and the clothes that he was wearing. But the PJ actually didn't release this information at all until May 25th. So if her sighting is real, didn't even matter. That's because a long time. That's yeah. a long time for someone to get out of there, you know? So considering how poorly everything was being handled, the McCanns decided to get the word out themselves and to make as many people know that Madeline was missing as they could, so they called a press conference. In 2008, Jerry told Vanity Fair that they essentially wanted to, quote, market, unquote, Madeline in order to keep her in the public eye and to make sure people knew that she was missing. That makes sense. I mean, I don't blame them. If, If my child went missing and the investigation was being handled that shittily, I would want to get the word out too. Yeah. But the problem is, in Portugal, they like to keep their investigations as secret as possible so that way public opinion doesn't influence the investigations or the trials. 
But this was a huge source of frustration for the McCanns because that's not how they do things in the UK. And it was just like that cultural difference. They felt like no one was telling them anything because they wanted to keep them in the dark. But really, it was just how their justice system works, you know? Yeah. And they were so desperate to find the little girl. That's why they called the press conference. But again, this cultural difference, the PJ were not at all impressed by this. They did not like all the media attention on this case. But we're going to come back to that a little later. So put a pin in it. Yeah. How are we feeling? Well, right now I understand from both sides, the the PJ and the uh, parents. So, well, not, not everything they lacked doing, but I mean, getting stressed by press. I just like I'm just taking in all the all the information. I don't I want to make assumptions, but I know that I shouldn't, so I'm just not. It's really hard in this case. There's just there's just so much. One of my main sources in this was I watched uh an eight-part documentary series that Netflix made about this case. And I complained about it a lot because I was like, oh my God, it's so slow and it does not need to be eight parts, but the more I watched it, the more I was like, oh, the filmmakers, it just felt like the filmmakers opened a can of worms and they they just couldn't close it at all. It was like they interviewed one person and that person's like, we well, got to talk to these people. And th- those people are like, well, you didn't talk to those people. Those people have the best information. It just like snowballed and there's just so much. It's insane. So the media coverage of the McCanns was incredibly sympathetic at first. Of course it is. They lost their little girl on vacation, you know? There was tons of media all around Praia Deluge. And this is a small town. Like, this, they're, they're not used to this sort of thing. I, no, no one is, but especially not a small town. They've never seen a media circus like that. And it was absolutely crazy. And, and I mean, I never realized just how insane it was until I watched that, ne- that Netflix documentary. And I c- cannot imagine what it must have been like for them. There were cameras outside where they were staying. 24 7 and everywhere that they went they were followed because pictures of them was so valuable at that time and everyone wanted to know the story everyone wanted to have that exclusive first break or whatever the world was absolutely captivated by the story and during this media frenzy the journalists hanging around started to notice that there was a guy that was always there even though he had no connection to the case he was a British man living pretty, pretty close to the Ocean Club Resort. I mean, they were, he, his house was 150 yards or 137 meters away from the McCann's apartment. Like, really close. I'm already also people inserting themselves into cases. Mm-hmm. Never, never, a, I've seen too uh, never something I want to see. For that. Literally. His name was Robert Murat, and in the early days of the investigation, he he really inserted himself into what was going on. But he spoke English and Portuguese fluently, and so he was super useful to have around because in all of the confusion and the language barrier, he essentially became an interpreter for everybody um, and was able to keep communication going as efficiently as possible. Um, and I think at one point the PJ actually like signed him up as like to be an interpreter in the investigation, but I don't think it lasted very long. However, after several days, 
It started to seem odd that he was still hanging around, even though he was no longer needed because it was so big and they had official interpreters now. And people started to get really suspicious of him. And people became even more suspicious when three of the Tapas seven, so that's the seven other people that they were having dinner with, said that they had seen him very near the apartment at the time of the at the time of the disappearance. I see. Robert Murat was the first person arrested in this investigation. He was made an official aguido, which is um, what they call suspects in Portugal. Um, and he remained an aguido until July 2008. But there was absolutely nothing to link him to Madeline's disappearance other than the fact that he lived super close by. Yeah, nothing- so it would make sense if they saw him too. Right, that they're like, oh, we saw him right by where they lived right the night of the disappearance. It's like, yeah, he lives 150 yards away. Yeah, he could just he be could have just been walking home and it wouldn't be weird. And they searched everything. They searched his home, his computers. They had absolutely nothing on him. He saw that there were people panicking right outside his home. There was a language barrier. He went and helped. And I think he just, so he's, he's, he's in the documentary and I think he's just kind of a socially awkward person. And so people just didn't think he seemed normal. He seemed a little suspicious, but I think he was just kind of awkward. But I think, you know, after those first few days of being an interpreter, he really got, he, he got involved. He felt involved, you know, and yeah. he wanted to see how, if he could help even more to, to, to find Madeline, but they literally had nothing on him. So they couldn't charge him with anything. And his Aguido status was lifted, but for a while it ruined his life because people were certain that he had done it and so he was getting death threats and all sorts of shit and he ended up getting paid six hundred thousand pounds in out-of-court settlements for all the shit he had to go through in this case and like he was just trying to help yeah that's that that's a mess that just makes me sad because it's like someone that tried to help and do good and you know it was really helping by being an interpreter. In that situation, you need that language barrier is going to be really, really difficult. And he he helped as much as he could in those early days. And I am just afraid that people would be, this would discourage people from helping in a similar way in the future, you know? Yeah. So the investigation was really not going anywhere because their only lead dried up pretty darn quickly. And so the PJ started to think, well, maybe no one went into the apartment. Because in their opinion, there was no evidence of anyone entering. There was no 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 evidence of a, a break in, like no broken windows or anything. But the window and was so, open. Yeah, but there was no broken window. Like no, th- there was no evidence of someone entering the apartment through force. Oh, okay. You'll remember though that they were not too happy about the McCanns having so much media around the case. That actually made them pretty suspicious of the McCanns because to them. It seemed that they were maybe really into all of the attention that they were getting from all over the world, from all sorts of celebrities. And the PJ completely turned on them. And they were like, they did it. We have so much evidence. Watch and see. But you'll have to wait until Thursday to find out what happened. I want to know what evidence. Same. Oh, I've got... I think I think the second one might even be longer than this first one. <laughs> 
So if you would like to see pictures of this case in particular, like what the apartment looked like and the setup of the resort so you can see just how far the tapas bar and stuff was away, uh, we will be posting those on our Instagram and our Facebook. On Instagram, we are truecrimeintl, at truecrimeintl. And Facebook is uh, just True Crime International. We have a Facebook group. It's really awesome. You can join. Please come talk to me about your cultures on there. I'm desperate. Um, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star review if you can. It really helps to boost the show, uh, helps more people find it, and we would really, really appreciate those five-star reviews. We also have a Patreon if you are interested. We put out tons of extra content on there every month and we only have one level right now it's five dollars a month so if that is reasonable to you if that's something you can swing we would really love to see you over on patreon we'll give you the biggest most enthusiastic shout out and that's it we will see you guys for part two on thursday bye bye oh uh, we hope you've enjoyed your stay here at true crime international yes we do oh, right right <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>